You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When you hear that somebody or something was lobbying the government, what do you picture? A pleasant conversation about a political issue? A quid pro quo in a back room somewhere between a business and a government? Something shady or something totally above board, a normal part of the political process. What is the difference, really, between a business lobbying a member of parliament and you booking a meeting with an MP to push your representative towards your own positions on climate or taxes or whatever? Is there a difference? Lobbying is a strange thing. There are a million ways that it can happen, but only some of them actually count as lobbying. What you picture as lobbying may or may not be among those. Lobbying is technically reported and recorded and publicly available, but not always. And certainly not in any way that really makes it useful, that lets you see who is talking to who on behalf of whom and how often. At least, not until now. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Roberto Rocha is a data journalist at the recently launched Investigative Journalism Foundation, where he helped spearhead one of their very first projects. Hello, Roberto. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Why don't we start with kind of the concept at hand here, since I think, uh, while myself and perhaps a bunch of our listeners don't properly understand it officially. So in general, what is lobbying? And, And more importantly, when we talk about it, like what's the official definition of when something qualifies as lobbying? Yeah, lobbying is something that gets, uh, uh, there's probably a little bit of confusion around it. It has uh, some negative connotations of, you know, like rich companies trying to get favors from the government, trying to influence policies. And that is part of lobbying, but it's not exclusively part of lobbying. Lobbying is really any kind of communication between government and the people who the government affects. And that can be citizens, that can be nonprofit organizations, that can be activist groups, and that can be also companies and uh, corporations. It is a way for not only the stakeholders to maybe influence policy or push uh, bills a certain way, but it's also a way for just government and all these other parts of society to keep track of each other, to have a conversation going understand what each other is doing, uh, what government is planning, what's on the legislative agenda, so all these stakeholders can, say, prepare their activities for the year. So your investigation looks at, you know, who lobbies cabinet the most, uh, who gets FaceTime, all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to get into that. But first, just because I think you're right and it is a little bit confusing, maybe can you explain, like, what's the difference between a union or a lobbying group working on behalf of a corporation getting in front of any MP and me going to my MP's office and happening to get a meeting and, you know, telling him I want him to do X, Y, or Z for our riding. 
Right. That's a great question. So there is an official definition of lobbying. There are rules in Canada that govern how lobbying is conducted. Uh, there is a uh, Office of Commissioner of Lobbying of Canada and, uh, and lays out some rules, right? If you want to be a lobbyist, if you want to lobby the government, you have to register as a lobbyist. Mm. You have to go to a website and say, I am lobbying. My name is uh, Roberto. I am lobbying in on behalf of the Investigative Gen- Journalism Foundation. And I want to lobby on these topics specifically. And I plan on lobbying from this date to this other date. Okay. And then when I actually communicate with a government official, I have to declare that that communication was made on set date with these government officials. I have to name them. And I have to also um, mention briefly what the subject matter of the conversation was. Now, those are the rules, but like many rules, there are loopholes, there are exceptions, right? This makes it seem like it's possible to know everybody who lobbies, mm-hmm. and it's possible to know every time a lobbying communication happens. Unfortunately, that's not the case. When we talk about lobby groups working on behalf of someone, and that can be any kind of union or any kind of business or corporation, how does that arrangement work and, and who are these groups? Right. So let's uh, go back a little bit and talk about the two main types of lobbyists that exist. And these are legally defined categories of lobbyists. You have consultant lobbyists, and these are lobbyists that work for a specialized lobbying firm that offers their services for companies, or organizations that want to do lobbying. Right. Uh, there are lots of them in Ottawa. You maybe have heard of them. There's a Sussex Strategy. There's Blue Sky Group. There's National uh, Government Relations. Right. These are professional lobbyists who lobby on behalf of paying clients. These are called consultants. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another category called in-house lobbyists. And these are people who work for a company and do lobbying for that company exclusively. Right. A lot of uh, big associations have their own in-house lobbyists, right? Associations that represent, let's say, energy companies or food and beverage companies or unions. They have their own in-house lobbyists that talk to government uh, on on their behalf. So let's talk about what you did and what the IJF did. First, explain what this investigation actually was. And then second, why did you want to perform this investigation? What don't we know about who is lobbying who that we should? We undertook this investigation, first of all, because one of our main topics of uh, coverage is lobbying and more generally the influence of money in politics. And we have the data for it, right? One of the things we did do regularly every day is we harvest lobbying data, not only from the federal government, but from every province and we standardize it and we put it in a public-facing database so that anyone can go and see who has lobbied who. Not only in the federal government, but every province, because every province has their own uh, lobbying regime. And this makes it very hard to detect, let's say, coordinated lobbying efforts. Let's say one company wants to influence uh, climate law, not only in the federal, but in different provinces, right? You would have to go to all of these um, websites individually and see if there's a pattern. Well, we do that for you. So if you search for one company name, you will see all the times they lobbied all over the country. Right. The main reason we, we do this is to, you know, to keep an eye on these things. Uh, but also it's to showcase this uh, specific 
uh, story that we did is who lobbied cabinet members the most, federal cabinet members the most, is to showcase our data and what we can do with it. And not only what we can do with it, but what subscribers who get access to the, our data can also do with it. So we wanted to start at the very top and uh, show which are the lobby groups that get this privilege of meeting the most important politicians in the country. So tell me about what you found and maybe start with the moment that you've run all this data and you're looking at the results. What was the very first thing that stood out to you about lobbyists meeting with cabinet? The most striking thing is how awful the data we have in this country is. Explain that. Sure thing. So we tend to have this idea these these days that data is sort of an absolute truth, right? That it is the great decider of what is factual and what is not. Uh, there is like a, a cult of data these days. And it's important to understand that data are created by people and people make mistakes. People can get lazy, right? So you see that reflected a lot in all sorts of, of data from the government. Let's talk specifics here. When a lobbyist declares, by the way, it's lobbyists themselves that have to declare all these things. It's all self-declared, right? They put on the website themselves. Lobbyists many times don't know how to spell the name of the companies they represent. They are not consistent in how they register things. They will call their company, let's say, Amazon in one registration, and then Amazon Canada in another registration, and then Amazon Inc. in another registration, right? Computers are very dumb. So they don't know that all these things are the, are, are the same company. So if you're trying to count how many times, let's say, Amazon was lobbied, you will not get an accurate count because all the, these three different examples I gave you are counted different by, let's say, by, by adding up the, the different records. So the thing that struck me the most is how much time and effort is needed to standardize the data, clean it up, make it consistent, make it uniform so that you can actually get insights out of it. Without going into too much detail, because I, I think we could, you know, go down a rabbit hole here. And Oh my God, yes. And, and I would find it really interesting. I'm not sure if all our listeners have time for it, but maybe if you could quickly explain how you go about cleaning that up and standardizing it when, when it's so messy. Oh, thankfully, there are a lot of great tools these days that, that do a lot of the dirty work for you. You don't have to do it manually. There are tools that rely on machine learning and AI that, that detect patterns, that find you know, things that are kind of similar but not the same, and that ask you, hey, I found these three records that look kind of sa the same. Do you want me to standardize them into a single form? And that's a big time saver. So let's talk in general then about the big takeaways uh, that you published in the first article that came out of this data. Who does, in general, get the most FaceTime with members of Trudeau's cabinet and maybe before then Harper's cabinet? Like when we talk about really high-level lobbying in this country, who's doing it? They tend to be big associations that represent a lot of uh, individual stakeholders, right? If we're going to talk about the single biggest lobbyist in Canada, the one that met the most with all these ministers, it's the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And this is an association that represents all the cities in Canada or hundreds and hundreds of cities in Canada, right? That seems fairly logical and even, and even harmless in a way and good. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's not surprising. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of the top lobbyists are pretty much what you would expect. Another big one is Unifor, which is one of the biggest unions in Canada. Right? They meet with cabinet members to discuss things that affect uh, workers. They were really active during um, the first few months of COVID to uh, talk about, you know, uh, wage subsidies and so on, yes. uh, protections, uh, health protections for workers. Another major lobbyist uh, is the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, another huge association of uh, factories, right? Companies who make stuff in Canada. So those parts aren't very surprising. When you, but as you start going down the list, a few interesting things come up, right? Mm-hmm. You'll see that Rio Tinto is a single company, the single corporation that lobbied the cabinet the most, right? It's the only non-association. They talk a lot to, uh, I have the nice little dashboard right here. They talk a lot to global affairs and to innovation science and economic development, right? They talk about- uh, What do they do? uh, It's a mining company. So they talk about, you know, mining things. It's an international company, right? So they talk about mining in a global context. Mm -hmm. They offer their opinion on maybe climate issues uh, or climate regulations that would affect them, things like that. You just mentioned uh, climate issues and, you know, international affairs. That's my other question. When various lobbying groups or individual companies meet with the government, are we able to tell what policy area they're discussing the most? And if so, you know, what gets lobbied the most on behalf of, of businesses or unions? Yeah, that's where it gets a little trickier to keep an eye on these things. So when lobbyists register for lobbying, they have to declare what their intended outcomes are, but in general, in their lobbying goals. But every time a lobbyist actually meets with a government official, we don't know what was actually discussed in that meeting. There is no obligation to declare that. I see. There's no obligation to, to disclose the letters that were sent, the memos, the, the, the phone conversations, that that's what happens, a, a transcript of the meeting. There is no obligation to disclose that. Hmm. And that, that's one of the big flaws of our lobbying regime that uh, you know, a lot of democracy kind of watchdogs will say. One of the interesting things I thought about going into this conversation with you and looking through uh, the data is the image of lobbying versus the reality, if that makes any sense. And, mm-hmm. and we've kind of gotten at it a little bit, but I want to talk about the more insidious stuff. You know, when you say this corporation has been lobbying the government to people or like, you know, this minister was meeting with lobbyists, we have this image of, just to use climate change because you mentioned it, you know, uh, oil industry executives like showing up in a trench coat to offer some uh, some compromises, if only we could get rid of some of these standards, you know, and And I guess what I'm asking is, do we know how different that is from the reality? And, you know, how do we determine uh, where the line is between like quid pro quo and the kind of lobbying, you know, that we discussed, which is cities approaching the government on behalf of municipal affairs? Yeah, it's that's a really hard thing to measure from the outside, uh, and especially with the data we have. Right. Yeah. All we can measure is who's declared that they actually met with official, right? It's all self-declared. So it's an open secret in Ottawa that a lot of lobbying goes undeclared. It's sort of like shadow networking. A common example that's, you know, kind of ask any Hill reporter, they kind of all know that this happens, but let's say a minister or an advisor to the minister or a policy um, wonk for a minister is at a restaurant in Ottawa. 
and a lobbyist happens to be there, says, oh, hello, I didn't know you came here. Uh, let me buy you a drink. And they start talking policy. That is lobbying in a sense, right? Mm. It's in, in trying to influence a government official. But that's not going to get recorded. Right. Right. That wasn't a uh, that wasn't done through the official channels. I and mean, who's going to know anyway? Also, lobbying doesn't get recorded when it's initiated by a public official, only when it's initiated by a lobbyist in most cases. Right. So those kind of communications also don't get recorded. So if the government reaches out to a, a union lobbyist or to a, an oil company lobbyist and they say, you know, we have some questions about blah, 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 that's not lobbying because it came from the other side. Yeah, that's it. That's what the regulations say. Right. So is there pernicious lobbying that happens undetected? I think most certainly there is. It's just very hard to analyze it with data, which is why one of our um, goals is to do a good enough job with the data we have that people will leak to us, mm. that we will have whistleblowers come to us and tell us you know, what's going on that isn't being talked about. In the meantime, while we wait for that to happen, which would be probably pretty amazing for you guys and probably useful for the general public as well, what kinds of things could be done to the lobbying process? And we talk about transparency and the lack of it in Canadian government all the time, but what kinds of things could be done to the lobbying process that would make it easier for citizens to find out who's been lobbying their officials? And then to your point, more importantly, what was actually discussed and was the official influenced by this discussion? Yeah, those are uh, great questions. Uh, there's been a lot of actually lobbying. Of course. To revise the uh, Lobbying Act, uh, lobbying rules to give it more teeth. But yeah, one of those things that you just mentioned is uh, disclose the contents of actual communications, of actual meetings, right? If you want to know what was actually discussed in the meeting, you have, often have to file an, an access to information request which can take you know, a long time, sometimes years, mm -hmm. to be disclosed. Sometimes it comes back redacted, so that's kind of useless. We need uh, stricter penalties for noncompliance. Right now, there's uh, the Lobbying Act is, doesn't have much teeth. There's not really any punishment for not following the rules very well. Uh, another thing that could help a lot is to uh, reduce some of these loopholes. Right there, uh, There is sort of a loophole that if you're an in-house lobbyist, you only have to declare lobbying if lobbying represents a significant part of your duties. Hmm. So how do you know how do you define significant part first of all? And does that mean that a company can ask a you know an intern to communicate with a government official and it doesn't have to be registered because that's not part of his uh, significant part of his duties? He's just uh, there you know just a one-off thing he did. So there are all these loopholes that keep us in the dark about what's fully happening. So this is my last question, and this is not in any way intended as a knock on this investigation, because I think it's incredibly valuable. And as you said, you know, hopefully it gets better and better as we get more information. With all that you've said about loopholes and things not being reported and the regulations, which don't seem that tight, when you look at the data set that you've got now, what percentage confidence do you think you have that you're capturing everybody who's making appeals on policy to government officials? That's so hard. I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't. Uh, I don't know what percentage of lobbying the data that we have actually captures. I hope it's enough that it's significant, that offers you know at least a uh, pretty good idea of what's happening. But with all these um, loopholes I mentioned, it's really hard to give an answer on that. 
That's fair enough. Uh, as so often is the case when talking about government transparency, we kind of just don't know what we don't know, right? That's it. That's it. The best we can do is be really clear about the uncertainties, that this is just what was declared, but it doesn't mean that it's all that's happening. Roberto, thank you so much for this. Congratulations on the launch of this project, and it will be really interesting to see uh, what kind of data you continue to dig up in the months to come. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Roberto Rocha of the Investigative Journalism Foundation. If you would like to poke around their lobbying tool or one of their other public interest databases, you can go to theijf.org. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You should know by now where to find us. We are on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. We are available via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. A reminder, we love getting story ideas. We've gotten a whole whack of them since we came back for the new year, which is amazing, and we're working on some of them right now. And you can call us. Leave us a voicemail, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is anywhere and everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's definitely on smart speakers if you ask them to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.